The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Los Feliz edition. It's Thursday, November 14th, 2019. On today's show, Parasite is a deeply unsettling psychological thriller from the celebrated director Bong Joon-ho. It is the first South Korean movie to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and for what it's worth, it's making bank globally. We're joined by Justin Chang, the film critic of, a film critic, the film critic of the LA Times, to discuss it. And then it is the peculiar American curse. It's right there in our founding document that we must pursue happiness. What is it about this, our special national imperative that, imperative that is making us so miserable? <laughs> and then finally, the smart folks at Apple can take a phone and turn it into a camera, a Walkman, and everything bagel. Why can't they? That's a joke. <laughs> that was just nothing. That was nothing. We had I a pin dropping one. in the back. All right, well, there's a better joke coming, so get ready. So why can't they take the Belle of Amherst and turn her into a foul-mouthed badass? Dickinson is a new offering on Apple TV. We are joined by its creator and showrunner, Elena Smith. Joining me... It's, it's a thrilling lineup tonight. Joining me tonight is uh, Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times in charge of arts and culture, and Justin Chang. It's true. Hi, I'm so glad you guys are here. I like floor-length knitwear when it goes below 70 degrees. It's very cold tonight. It's like very cold out now. I also have a coat, like a duster. (laughs) It's so nice to see you guys in person instead of in the ether. It's kind of cool to all be in the same room. I mean, we're sort of beaming in from remote locations and... I got asked by one L.A. listener this week whether we just flew back and forth every other week to do it in person. Oh, that's... like, I wish. (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) Technology is now so much better than than we are. Um, And and Blondina. (laughs) (laughs) Who may also go by the alias Dana Stevens, film critic of uh, Slate.com. All right, let's dig in, shall we? Uh, Bong Joon-ho has been best known in this country for the movie Snowpiercer, but even as I say that, maybe for Okja, which I think is an underrated film. What a wonderful movie. He will be going forward best known, if I dare say it, for his new movie, Parasite, uh, which is shaping up to be a bona fide hit. It has been called the most talked about foreign film of the year. It is a psychological thriller, though this may be too limiting a description to describe what is really an intense ride. It is a bitter meditation on social class in the age of the global 1%. It tells the story of a poor but very, very shrewd family's infiltration of a rich and very, very gullible family's home life. The movie opens with the bright but class-inhibited son of the poor family becoming the wealthier family's tutor. To add too much more to that is to spoil this remarkable film, but we're going to have to get into it uh, somewhat. But first, please, please welcome to the stage the wonderful critic, Justin Chang. (laughs) 
I, uh, I feel like Carol Brady. I have my two families in one place. <laughs> so excited. All right, before we, uh, before we dig in, let's listen to a clip. Ah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm going to go. I'm going to all right, before we dig in, I'm curious who, who's seen the movie. Applaud if you have. Or... Ooh, that right, seems so like we, two-thirds, maybe? Yeah, so we can spoil the living shit out of it. Then, well. All right, Justin, you called the movie in your review a thriller of extraordinary cunning and emotional force. Uh, and you point to one of its most resonantly symbolic images, which is two windows. Maybe begin by talking about those two windows. Yeah. Um, hello, by the way. It's so thrilling to be here. Um, I started that because the first image you see in this movie is a window, and I don't think it spoils anything to say the last image you see in the movie is a window as well. Um, and you saw it in that clip that was just played. Uh, it's the window of the very poor Kim family's semi-basement, half-underground apartment. And it's interesting because later then I bring in this other window, which is later on when they are in this, the wealthy Park household, living in this beautiful architectural masterpiece of a house, and they're looking through this much bigger, bigger window onto this garden, there's just this staggering disparity. I mean, it kind of encapsulates what the movie's about, of course, which is two families on, could not be more opposite ends of, of, of the class divide. Um, I, and I think that it's, it's very resonant because right away, Bong Joon-ho is telling you that this is going to be a movie in which we look inside and see how people live. This is, um, and it's also, but it's also them inside their houses and looking out and what do they see? And the Kims, who are very poor, are looking out at this cramped street with this guy who's just like, you know, this drunk who shows up and pees outside their window and it's trash and it's just their, their view of the world is so cramped and narrow. And then when, they, when the view changes and it's like they're in a different world. Mm-hmm. And their home is, is porous, right? Things come in that window, sounds, yes. smells, fluids. Fumigation it's, gas. It, fumigation yeah. gas, Which, you have an incredible yeah. scene, right? Yeah. They're, they're, it, they cannot live not only in a you know, minimally decent, much less luxurious space, they can't keep the outside world outside. Yeah. Um, the amazing thing too is that, that it just, as a side note, that, how, that the house is a set, everything in the movie is a set, even that apartment, which you think you know, is so pitch perfect and it's grime and it's, and it's, 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 it's squalor and it, it was all built, so, which is kind of remarkable. Let's quickly just take it down to the crassest level. This is a tr- tremendously well-made movie, written, directed, produced, uh, production design, and ensemble-casted movie. I mean, just in a pure thumbs-up and thumbs-down, rave about the movie if that's what you felt. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and I, I, it, it's, it's been really gratifying for me just to see Bong Joon-ho get the success, the, the extraordinary success and the, the reception to the movie because he's been one of my favorite filmmakers for a while, and he brings this rigor just on that sheer craft level that you right. describe. I mean, I think, you know, Dana and I both in our reviews pointed out, and we're certainly one of the first people to point this out, he's, he's a Hitchcockian, you know, he's working at that level in terms of just sheer craft. He r- meticulously storyboards um, 
his, his uh, every, every, every shot, every setup. Um, there's just a tremendous fluidity. He's moving, you know, the way he moves through space. And even in that shot, you see, it's like, it's a, it's a few different shots, but even in, within the cramped quarters, you're, the way he moves the camera around, there's, yeah. there's a virtuosity to that. And that becomes even more so when we get to the Parks household. And I mean, this movie, you take out, I mean, if you, you, you can't really divorce it from what it's about and the subtext and everything, but it's just, you know, I, I, it, it's a great heist thriller, first mm. and foremost. I mean, the first half of it, which, you yeah. know, no, we, won't, we won't spoil, even up to that point, we won't spoil beyond that. But um, just seeing the twist, the way he feeds you information, um, and, and when, he, when he tells you, you know, what you know, and, and, you know, and again, the windows come in, like, who's spying on whom? What's going on in this? It's just like, it's, it's just a masterclass just in basic choreography. Um, but what I love about just his craft as a filmmaker, remarkably, it's, it, it's, it's constructed as precisely as a Swiss watch, but it doesn't feel airless or mechanical. There's so much life in it. This is a great ensemble movie, and, so, and, you, and despite that, there's like eight or nine or ten different characters, and you, know, you get to know some better than others, but you, they all feel real. Mm -hmm. They all feel inhabited. Right. And I think that there's just a level on which he's really built this movie from the inside, and I think, and I don't mean to keep quoting Dana, although her review is really great. But it's like you said, like the way the movie is is so or, it feels so organic. His his technique, it's it's as if it's grown rather than processed or built or constructed. Even yeah, you know? I was yeah. struck. I didn't read you until after I had already seen and written on the movie, and we rhymed in so many places in the way we talked about it. And I yeah. think that thing that I said about the, his movies in general, but this one among them feeling organic and grown as if they kind of butted up out of the earth instead of being created, um, has to do with what you were just saying about that they're clockwork, but they're not mechanical. You know, I think I said something like it has this simultaneous sense of order. This is a very rigorously ordered movie, especially when I'm seeing it a second time, which I did today, because I hadn't seen it in a few months, and I wanted it to be fresh for this discussion. And, uh, and you really see how it's put together, just with such rigor, and yet it's tremendously alive, and all the characters are tremendously alive. Their emotions are direct. You know, there's not a sense of, in a way, it's not Hitchcockian in the sense that there's not an artful remove. You know, I would say it's, it's a bit more warm or emotionally engaging somehow. I also think that I, I noticed that rhyme as well and, and thought it was so funny that you both found such distinct but, but simpatico ways to articulate it. But I think the writing and performance of the characters within this mechanism, which like, you know, it's a class warfare movie. There's lots of things to say about the state of capitalism and class relationships within that. There's a lot of things that are very like truthful and powerful that you could say that are just like simple and mad and not particularly sympathetic to the people who are on the taking side of the equation. And the specificity of these characters is imagined as performed and then the surprise of their activity. Like they, each of them surprises you scene by scene and not because you feel like the characters are erratic but because you just can't quite, they feel so real and specific that you can't quite predict what they're gonna do even though there is this kind of schematic. I mean one, one thought I had about this movie um, which is maybe like more of a tweet than a conversation starter. So if this kills the conversation, I apologize. But like, I was like, wait a minute, this is Snowpiercer was class warfare about horizontal, and this is class warfare about vertical, which like is not. And I was like, is it going to? Is this next one going to be diagonal, like, <laughs> um, or in a spiral? Like, there's there is something so formal about it, but the but the uh, performances are just so sharp. I mean, particularly one thing I really love the daughter um, of the Kim family. They have this very interesting debate. So, so we we will spoil the early um, structure, which is that the Kim son 
gets a job as a tutor and slowly realizes that he can wedge the door open for the to basically re replace the helpmeets of the rest of the family with the rest of his family. So they're now eventually all employed uh, in this new family, which does not know that they are all related to each other and living in the same place. And they all have different approaches to adopting their new false personas. And they're very specific, and they have different responses to how to how to seem at home in this world that is so glossy and sort of Korean dwell magazine-y. Um, it's like a modernist, cold, cold but warm, modernist, lots of weird lights type tableau. Um, and they they sort of note that the daughter seems like born to it. Like she approaches it with this hauteur and and just starts bossing the gullible rich family around <laughs> where the other, they all, the rest of them all take different approaches. And it's just the, the precision and strangeness of that and the fact that that is more how it would happen than them all. You know, it's not like um, Ocean's Eleven or something like where they're trying to pull off a caper and sure they all have a special skill, but they all just seem so fake faco she even bosses her own mother around because the mother's the housekeeper. So of course you have, you know, she's like in character and then just takes to it like tuck to water. Yeah, the power relations. I mean, this is a, a movie about class power relations and social power relations, but also about the power relations within a family individually. And something else that you and I, Justin, both hit on, I think, is the we very subtle notes before way that the, that the patriarchy of the rich family is underlined, right? Which is something that really struck me on a second viewing in particular. It would be really easy to make the rich family just simply the foils, right? They're just oblivious, entitled, and that it's a it's simple sort of Marxist story of rising up, but without spoiling anything, I can say that this movie is far from doing that and layers a lot of qualities into both families, right, and makes you always wonder about their, their motivations. Yes. And, and one thing that you clearly, very clearly see on a second viewing is that the rich mother really prefers the son over the daughter, uh -huh. right, and oh, that... Yeah. Um, and that in everyday life, whenever there's a chance to make a decision in his favor, that's what she'll do. But it's never commented upon, it's never thematized, it's just there. Uh, well, yes, without spoiling anything, we can say it's Hegelian, not Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to, I have to I, I'm gonna get this wrong, but I have two film critics on the stage to help me get it right, but doesn't Hitchcock have a definition of suspense, which is, you know, the viewer of the film knows that the ticking time bomb is under the coffee table, but the people seated around on the sofas don't. It's, it's this discrepancy in knowledge. And once you've heard that definition, you're like, ah, oh, what, what could be the ticking time bomb? What could be the coffee table? Oh, let me get, and he has a coffee table and it's not a ticking time bomb. I won't give anything away, but it's just nerve tautening to the point of snapping your every viewerly nerve. I mean, it's just it so astonishing. And very, one quick point, very, very quickly, Dana, is that, the movie manages to be very timely, right? It's obviously an allegory at some level about, about the 1% and the 0.001% and the global rich, um, but it's not at all didactic. And none of that, I don't know, topicality is such a terrible word because it doesn't feel t topical in any shallow way whatsoever. But I mean, the suspense and the characterizations are so lush and so completely realized, even though one is relieved that filmmakers right now want to address how fucked up our world is and to be able to do both things, to deliver a genre masterpiece and say, you know, as an artist with a voice, I have to address that this is how power is operating uh, in the world, discrepantly in the world. It's just, that's an astonishing uh, twofer. One thing I thought of, I mean, you mentioned um, the movie Shoplifters, I think in your review, Justin, but uh, I was like, oh, 
you know, what was the big Oscar foreign language potential best picture Oscar contender last year? It was Roma, which was also an investigation yeah. of life from the point of view of the servant class in, in that case, a sort of striving and economically troubled upper middle class family and not a lavishly hyper rich family. But it's just interesting that for all of the complaints about, um, oh, it's all a bunch of superheroes and fake stakes and how much can we argue about Marty Scorsese, like, these are some like really powerful movies getting made that are quite interesting that are exploring these themes with subtlety and deafness. And making money. And making bank. And making point. <laughs> no, but uh, unironically, I mean, it's good that people are going to see them. Uh, Justin, without spoiling the movie, and maybe even without answering the question, oh. <laughs> but talking about the question, who is the parasite? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean I mean I think the answer is clearly meant to be they all are, you know, and you can it really does depend on how you look at it because um because of course, you know, the Kim family fits that definition in the most superficial sense, but then who is truly the parasitic entity on society? Well, it's obviously the Park family. And I just have to say I just love the way that the title I love how he visualizes that title. I mean, it's, you know, even just the way in which the, the Kims, like, move around in the, in the house. Yeah. Like, they're, like, the way they sort of operate, like, they're, like, a single organism, like, like, a, like a parasite. It's, I just love this. It's, it's, again, it speaks to the specificity of detail in the movie and even the way they're, they're directed. Like, they, they, they skulk about, like, they're, like, crawling around, like, they're, like, they're like, 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 in, like insects, you would almost think. Yeah. Except, actually, no, it's just because they're, they're just used to this kind of, kind of life. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Before we um, exit the segment, any dissenting voices at all on this stage? Well, this is just the thing I wanted to get in before we close. So far from dissenting, I was just going to say that for me, I think this is maybe one of the most perfectly realized movies we've ever talked about on the Gab Fest. I mean, everybody's making their best of decade lists now because it's the end of right end of 2019 and uh, I suppose at some point I'm gonna have to do that and I'm not a big list maker I don't love the idea of ranking movies but I cannot imagine not putting Parasite on the list of the best 10 movies of the decade it's really just an astoundingly kind of symphonic work and that really hit me this time it uses a lot of classical music too and there's a few different montages you'll know if you've seen it there's sort of some comic action montages that are set to classical music that just have this symphonic perfection you know where you just walk out like I wouldn't have changed a single second of that so that's my answer I love to be a contrarian crank but I but I will not indulge on this movie no takers I mean I'm even trying to make my just top 10 of the year list and I don't know and I'm part of me just everyone's gonna put Parasite I don't want to put Parasite but I just want to be different and cool but I'm (laughs) probably gonna put Parasite (laughs) we'll make just make all 10 Parasite yeah that would that would, be that would be different. Okay, my slight dissent. <laughs> my, my slight dissent is I know Dana's incorrigible taste for blood and gore. You know, it cannot go satisfied. The tooth she has for mayhem is you wouldn't even begin to believe it. But I have my limits, and boy, they were tested in this movie. I don't want to give anything away, but God, it just, I. He, that filmmaker is smarter than I am. So I sat there understanding that it was there for a reason and appreciating that, but oof, man, be ready for it. All right, Justin, please come back on our show soon. Thank you for having me. Give it up for Justin Chang. Really good.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I wrote this introduction back when I thought we would have already talked about Emily Dickinson, but everyone is always kind of talking about Emily Dickinson, whether they know it or not. So I think I can keep the introduction. Um, We will be talking about Emily Dickinson, an apposite to that discussion. She's known almost more than anything for suggesting that the essence of life is better grasped in intensely, intensively, and intensively concentrating on the small. Whereas happiness brings with it the connotation of leaving, seeking, getting, acquiring, spending, as opposed to, say, staying, rooting, and deepening. And yet, there it is, the word is right there in our founding document. I mean, talk about a parasite, right? As Americans, we have to pursue it or almost risk being internal exiles, being weirdos, right? You don't want to pursue happiness. You're a very suspicious person. The writer Cody Delistrati has a provocative essay on happiness in the site Aeon, which everyone should read, by the way. Aeon is really good. In which he writes, this imperative to avoid being, even appearing unhappy, has led a culture that rewards a perf- led to a culture that rewards a performative happiness in which people curate public-facing lives via Instagram and its kin, composed of a string of peak experiences and nothing else. Sadness and disappointment are rejected. Even neutral or mundane life experiences get airbrushed out of the frame. It's as though appearing unhappy implies some kind of Protestant moral fault, like you didn't work hard enough or believe sufficiently in yourself. Julia, I'm going to start with you because you moved to California. (laughs) Okay. Did that make you happier? Yeah, it did. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, what a pander. Just a craven pander to the crowd. Um, no, I mean, it made me happier because I got to live in the same house as my husband and children all the time instead of only seeing my husband in person 36 hours a week. And I like my husband a lot. So <laughs> that's better, and that made me happier. Um, and it made him happier to not be on a plane 12 hours a week. And it makes me happy when he's happy. So a lot of happiness entailed. Um, not having nothing to do with California. Sorry, California. Also, I really like California. Um, why are we talking about whether I'm happy? Oh, right. Um, I mean, I, I thought this essay was really interesting and provocative. I also thought it had a few straw men embedded within it. Because I. it is true that the pursuit of happiness is in our founding document. I am not certain I agree that... Our relationship to social media is necessarily all of us pretending to be happier than we are all the time. And like, it is true that you have to perform a self on social media if you choose to engage with social media. And the constant performing of self is a thing that is weird and new about our current state. But like, only some people choose to perform happiness. Other people choose to perform languor or beauty or frustration or mischief. Like, you know, people have different vibes that they're putting out there. So I don't know. I just these essays that describe like everyone's constantly in a rat race to think they're having the best time and and you know 
like Instagram story, the hot party they're at. Like, I don't know. What Instagram are you on? That's not the Instagram I'm on. Like, a good friend of mine just Instagrammed about, like, how he suffered a period of depression at work and then found a different work that he liked more. And, like, I felt closer to him because he shared this period of pain, which, to be fair, he didn't share share in real time. He shared it once he'd gotten out of it. But I... I then I like sent him a message and was like, "Hey, I didn't know that you were going through that. I'm so sorry. I'm so glad you found like, yeah, I don't know. Like, what is, what Instagram is this where everyone's just like, I'm at a party. I'm at a party. Wow, I'm so happy. Like, that's not really what it is. So I I just I whatever. This is my allergy to technophobic essays right. coming out. There are other smarter things to maybe center on in the essay, but I just would like my allergy to technophobic essays stipulated. Right. What I'd like to know, though, quickly is on what social media platform are people performing Langer? (laughs) I I pause a little bit before that word. Shit, I'm busted. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to answer that. Point taken, point taken. The youth, right? So I have two daughters substantially under the age of 20, and they are as likely to be performing misery. I mean... And I don't mean to say that glibly, but there is a sense in which performativity is in no way limited to happiness among young people. It's just an ethic of sharing that includes what strikes me at moments to be a semi-performative capacity to share misery with peers on Insta or Finsta, as it were. Um, I, we, I, Dana, I started with Julia because over the course of the last six to 18 months, Julia and I have been slowly switching roles on the show. <laughs> and true. I'm the credulous bunny, and she's the, <laughs> like, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, however, I mean, uh, it, um, but um, we're snapping back into place here with this essay. I knew that she wouldn't disappoint me, um, that she would call it a, technoph- a technophobic mishmash. What would you make of it? Uh, I mean, I would, I would contend that the main point of this essay is not to opine about social media and what we should all do about it. And if it were, we wouldn't have wanted to talk about it for yeah, the segment. I, mean, I agree. My fear for this segment was let's not all fall into the same platitudes that everyone falls into when talking about what is real happiness and what does meaningful life consist of. But maybe it's impossible to talk about it without falling into those those platitudes and pabulum. What I liked about this particular essay is that it does get prescriptive at the end, and maybe it's too technophobic when it gets prescriptive, but it's really descriptive for the large part of the essay and gets into the history of this concept and uh, and even the etymology of the word happiness or happy that I'd never thought about, right. which is that it comes from the same root as happenstance, right, or mayhap or something like that, that it really has more to do with luck than with a particular feeling of well-being or something, and that it was only in the course of hundreds of years that this word became the kind of aspirational state that it is seen as now, at least, you know, at least in this, uh, in this more shallow, superficial way. So the idea of thinking of different ways of making one's life meaningful or worthwhile that might not involve the world happy, word happiness or concept of happiness seemed like the most fruitful part of it to me. For example, um, he, the author is a man, right, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. talks about the, the cultural distinctions between different ways of thinking about happiness and says that specifically it's a very Anglo-American thing, right? To have the stiff upper lip for the Brits or this sort of happy face, everything's great, how are you, but don't really answer the question style that, that the American 
hail fellow well met kind of person has, and that there might be other cultures um, where, you know, for example, in a culture where Buddhism is part of the cultural tradition, maybe being happy, being sad, you know, that it's all sort of part of this this wheel of um, of emotion that you're trying to distance yourself from. Or he also specifically cites the French as, you know, a culture who don't go around, who sort of roll their eyes at the idea that, you know, every single day is about optimizing and fulfilling one's potential yes, happiness. happiness. Uh, the, the, I think the great line there, and there were some great lines in this essay, was that the pursuit of happiness was fundamentally unsophisticated to the French. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this. I remember talking with a, a professor's wife in France, a wonderful, extremely French, you know, just someone who was just smoke and issue bon mots nonstop and, uh, and her saying something about that the two big concepts for Americans that sort of defined America but that the French just don't get are le fun <laughs> she said the two key key words to understand America were fun and save uh, which I thought was really interesting you know this sort of um, Protestant work ethic and oh, the idea of hoarding sure. and so yeah. forth you know saving things for another moment yeah but also expending yourself in, in fun and that the French were interested in neither saving nor fun. <laughs> so there was more of a kind of, I don't know, just a day-to-day -day acceptance of, of misery, maybe. <laughs> the best quality in this essay is that it did give me, I, I agree, I loved all those parts of it, and it, it did give me that thing where I started looking at the word happy and thinking about the concept of happy and had that feeling when you look at the word fork for too long and you're like, what are these letters and what is a fork and how do I eat? And like, it does make you realize how ingrained it is in American culture to be like happy, good, sadness, bad. Try to be happy. Try not to be sad. You know that that you right. can sit in some of these feelings for longer. And it also made me think about like I I have so much. You know I think I was trying to think about the positive feelings I associate with good moments and you know there's sort of enjoyment and companionship and satisfaction and the pleasure of work well done and the pride and joy of children like. I don't know, happiness just began to seem like this weird, amorphous umbrella term that I wasn't sure which of my actual daily emotions, you know, they, they seemed to all roll up into it in a general, like, checkbox of, like, well, I'm not miserable. Right, well, it's not something but it you didn't, go around asking yourself all day, right? Am I happy? That would be really anxiety producing. It's not, it's like, it's weirdly like, a, it, it almost made me feel like happy is a category for types of feelings that are happy feelings, but like happy in and of itself. It's, it's like, do I ever yeah. feel just happy? All right, right. this is a metaphysical conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that you were trying to avoid. Anyway, but it did give me like a fun, like, like you know, head, head spin feeling. There is just a great bong water vibe to Julia Turner now that she's <laughs> moved to California. Uh, I, I, well, I've got a couple of different thoughts. One is that um, who's the villain of the piece, right? That's what I kept asking. So is it Thomas Jefferson? Well, not really, because Jefferson was part of that turn by which the word went from one older meaning of just kind of good fortune as it befalls you, maybe even somewhat passively, like fortuna, right? Um, and it, uh, you know, in its evolutionary shift to its modern meaning. And, and in fact, I thought the essay was quite smart on that, that, that for Jefferson, happiness really meant something more like Epicurean happiness. Like Epicurus had a whole philosophy of sort of, uh, we might even call it reductively a Zen removal from the vicissitudes of life and an acceptance of, uh, of uh, fate to a certain degree, um, and peace of mind and absence of bodily pain, right? He didn't have happiness in anything like its modern connotation. So it's not Jefferson. And then, then you think, well, is it neoliberalism, right? So there's actually a very good theorist of neoliberalism named William 
Davies, I believe, a Brit who's written beautifully about how happiness is an industry. You know, the market is cajoling you at all times to perform for it and in it and keep very little in reserve for yourself. Uh, and to better do that, you need to be zesty and positive in some way. Zesty is just a sort of funny word, right? Oh, I, but I love zesty things. I know, like I'd lemon much rather zest, aspire to you know? zestiness than happiness, honestly. Right? <laughs> yeah, zesty. Zest has acid. That's the thing. Zest has acid in it. That's what makes zest so good. It's bright and joyful, but it has that sharpness. I can't believe we found the room with the zesty. <laughs> this is the, I can. Just like culture gap. Are you in the right? Are you guys in the right? show in my place. <laughs> um, but I think that there, there is one real like empirical villain maybe is not quite the right word, but social force that needs to be reckoned with, which I do think that measurably younger people are less happy than they've been in the past. And that is because of social media. And there's an unrelentingly comparative aspect to social media, whether you're being languorous or zesty <laughs> on it. And uh, that seems to be measurably in ways that are provably sociologically true, you know, and not just in the, you know, morbid sensibility of the essayist's mind, making people significantly more miserable. That said, I did come across a couple of passages where I thought maybe the villain here is the essayist. I mean, it's, <laughs> it is a lovely essay. This is not a slag on the writer at all. But, um, and only because I relate to this mentality so well am I so on high alert for it whenever I see it. There is no image of modern existential emptiness quite like the person traveling the world while constantly posting pictures of restaurants and landmarks, not restaurants and landmarks, <laughs> on social media and competitively performing happiness at the expense of making genuine connections with his peers. That language of genuineness and authenticity, I think we've all learned to do without it, even the depressos like me <laughs> among us, you know, who want to write Jeremiah's against everything good <laughs> and happy and zesty. But anyway, I, it leapt out at me there that, that the sensibility of the writer was leaking through. It almost sounds like you um, are taking objection to the technophobic nonsense in this essay, Steve. <laughs> That's flipping us back around again. <laughs> and you kind of liked its jaundice it's true. Outlook. It's true. Oh, man. All oh, right. actually, but I did have one thought about Parasite, to just flip it back, as I was trying to think, were either of those families happy, and who was happy, and what does happiness mean in those contexts and in the broader class context? And it's, in a weird way, the Kim seem more happy in their sort of genuine regard for each other and their satisfaction at their efficacious scheming than the parks do, at least for a while, uh, until the part of the movie we can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings in other characters whose happiness could be questioned and, and thought about, right? yeah. but no more can be said without spoiling it. Can I talk about one distinction that I came across in a different place before we close? I almost, ha I almost had regained control of the segment. <laughs> it's great when you start to make a statement and your fellow co-host just sort of sags. <laughs> in well, are we actually staying within the confines of this topic? Our, our format is typically three separate topics being handled discreetly and apart from one another. I'm sorry that me talking on our talk show was a big disappointment. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it just there's a, there was another source that I was listening to a, a podcast called The Happiness Lab, just as part of the yeah. kind of research for this segment. And somebody, some expert scientist who came on there, had a, had a distinction that although it may come down to you know sounding too much like a uh, I don't know, feel good maxim or something I thought was useful. And this person was distinguishing between, they were essentially saying that a happy life, a good life as we think of it, has two components that need to coexist, that need to come together. And it was just a difference of preposition. She said, there's happiness in your life, which is sort of experiencing individual moments of pleasure, joy, pride, togetherness, et cetera, and happiness with your life, right, which might not make you happy in every single moment, but means that you have some larger sense of meaning. And that those two things might not always go together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In order to accomplish that meaningful project, you may be doing plenty of things that don't make you happy, like working hard and foregoing pleasures that you would otherwise enjoy. And somehow that idea of happiness in and happiness with coming mm -hmm. together right. seemed more useful to me than that, that question Julia was talking about. Am I happy? Are you happy? Are the people around me happy? Right. That somehow just you know, that's takes useful. you wall. The, the, the it resolves the fork problem. Mm -hmm. Nicely. <laughs> <laughs> right. The opposite of which is being totally engrossed in something that you love doing, even though it might be extremely difficult and require exertion. And you just you forget yourself, self-forgetting. And you're, you are not asking whether you're happy. And retrospectively, you're like, oh, that was fulfilling. You might not use the word happy. Right. Like a flow state. Right. And something. that yeah, would exactly. be toward the meaning happiness with your life side rather than in your life. Okay. So if I were a real host of a real show... Right there, it would say the title of the essay. <laughs> but I'm not, so it doesn't. So I can tell you that the essay appears on the Aeon website. It's by Cody Delastrati, and it is a very good essay and provocative, which is why we discussed it. And the title of it will be on the link on our show page. <laughs> that was a very kind, That's indulgent laughter. Uh, <laughs> you, you people are very nice. Emily Dickinson is one of those writers for whom the discrepancy could not be any greater between their worldly success and the estimates of posterity. Unknown in her lifetime, she became as beloved, exalted, quoted, fetishized, picked over as any writer in the canon with its metaphysical ferocity and its deep, deep love of earthly and sensual life. Her poetry is just period, full stop, end of sentence. Here it comes, unsurpassable. I mean, she's just the greatest poet in the American idiom with the possible, maybe, maybe sitting next to her is Walt Whitman, but that's still a maybe. I mean, she is just absolutely the greatest. In uh, the new TV show from uh, Apple TV, which stars uh, Haley Steinfeld as Emily, the housebound spinster, the belle of Amherst, beloved Emily, our beloved iconic Emily. She swears like a sailor and is prone to unladylike outbursts and slouches. I love the slouches. She doesn't sit like we think Emily Dickinson should sit until we watch the show. She's still destined to be a spinster, maybe the world's most famous one, but for reasons other than what we might have imagined going into this wonderful show. She is too much the pert, rebellious, sexy, bad girl. And this, for some people, I have to imagine, I can't wait to ask Elaine, it must be the equivalent of the last temptation of Christ. <laughs> right, just so impious as to be totally grotesque. On that note, Elena Smith, the creator of this wonderful show, please come up to the stage. All right, it is just magnificent to have you up here with us. Total thrill. But before we dig in, let's listen. Uh, let's look at and listen to a clip. Nice to see you. You were late. 
Most people would be glad if I never came. Not me. I always want to see you. So, the poem's gonna get published. No. My dad won't allow it. But you said it was too late to stop it. My father will burn every copy if he has to. Anything to prevent me from ruining the good name of Dickinson? My darling. You'll be the only Dickinson they talk about in 200 years. Did you just walk into some rooms pitching this and people were like, these question marks just started popping up over their heads? I mean, it must have been quite, quite a journey. It was, but I actually, the journey took place for a long time and then finally there was only one pitch and I pitched it to Apple and they bought it. But a lot of work had been done before that happened. So, And there was question marks before and after. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know how many more question marks there are going to be after this. but uh, So I have to get one thing straight here. So you're saying that they had sex in the olden days? <laughs> Is that really true? Um, I would. I can't make any claims. I don't know. It's, it's all a metaphor. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'll ask you. I'll ask you a real question now, which is that when you're, I imagine when you're making something like this and creating something like this, you're confronted with a dilemma, like doing anything. Period. But m- much more, you know. I think uh, possibly intractably with a subject like Emily Dickinson, which many people think they know going in. Which is, are you going to make it very formal, very stilted and bodicey and the and thou and fakey English accents and in fact place a kind of emotional scrim between these characters as real people and the viewers or are you going to contemporize it in some way and say, fuck it, I don't care about anachronism. Like you really threw that caution to the wind and made this choice as strongly as one possibly could. Was that always true of the project as you conceived it? Yeah, well, I think that this project is much less a biopic or a historical uh, film or fiction than than it um, than people think hearing like it's about Emily Dickinson you sort of assume it's those things but what it is more is using the figure of Emily Dickinson as like a poetic, uh, meditation on where we are today in our culture and using the 1850s and her historical and also literary context as a kind of like funhouse mirror to look at ourselves and what it is to be coming of age as a radical young queer female artist in America today. Oh, that was beautifully put. I mean, it's and she, it's. Try teaching her to undergraduates who may not be familiar with her or only know her through the icon, and you have to humanize her. You have to say there's a ferocity here, an anger, a rage, uh, a feminist rage, a sexuality, a sensuality. Like, there's, there's so much compartmentalized in such a small space, and what I love almost most about the show is this person was given no social role to occupy that adjoined with her inner sense of who she was. And the show is her fabricating a solution to that immense problem. That's right, and it was always so important to me that Emily Dickinson 
our character, and I also believe is true about the real Emily Dickinson, uh, was not a victim. Like she had so much confinement and repression to her circumstances, but within those circumstances, she claimed all the agency that she could. And I truly believe, based on the scholarship that has been done in the past couple decades, that Emily Dickinson knew she was great, that she had a plan. In a way, she had a plan for her posthumous fame and success. And she was, um, you know, carrying out in a very strategic way everything she needed to do to make the body of work that she made that you have already said, and I agree, is like the best body of poetry in the English language and in America, and is like, so full of riddles and paradoxes and mysteries that we're still unpacking it today and maybe even some of that was part of the strategy, like being so mysterious um, was part of the strategy. So kind of depicting her as someone who knew as much as anyone can, like exactly what she was doing and was really purposeful. And um, I've said this before, but like I kept thinking her, uh, of her as like Khaleesi in Game of Thrones, like having that much of a mission. But I think that the show, you know, if, if there's like this fundamental mystery to Emily Dickinson's life, which is why didn't she publish, right? And there are a number of different answers that you can give. And I think that each season of the show that exists will will give maybe a totally different answer because ultimately there isn't just one. Um, but so the, the first season, which is really her coming of age story, it, the, it provides one answer, which has a lot to do with her relationship to her father and that as like a microcosm of the patriarchy, basically. You know it's terrible business to like break news on a podcast, right? <laughs> But it kind of sounds to me like there's going to be another season of the show, Elena. Yeah, well, we, we're, we're in production on season two right now. So, so hurry, hurry, up and, hurry up and binge season one so that you can watch season two. That's great news. <laughs> Elena, I want you to hear this in the spirit in which it's meant. I went into this not wanting to do this topic <laughs> because... <laughs> I was afraid to see this show. I thought there would be no way that I would like it. I don't, I try, of course, as a critic not to go into things with that mindset, but Emily Dickinson is just so special to me and has been, you know, one of my pantheon writers forever and ever and, you know, read her biography, been to her house, all of that. And I didn't like, for example, the Terrence Davies movie with Cynthia Nixon as her a couple of years ago. I won't even get into the reasons why. I mean, things about it were well done. But I guess I just, I don't feel the need for fictional Emily Dickinson's to be filling my head, basically. And so I went in with that um, caveat and then was just completely delighted by this show Yay. and really thrilled with what you did with it. <laughs> and I just sensed so much love for her language and respect for her language in the way um, you use poetry, for example. So the title of each episode is the first line of a poem or a line from a poem, maybe not necessarily the first, right? And, uh, and that poem, the, the episode becomes in a way the story of what made that poem possible, right? I mean, of course, all functioning under the fiction that the teenage Emily Dickinson had already written all these poems that she, in fact, wrote much later. But I think the moment that it kind of unlocked for me was when I realized that it's not a biopic or a send-up or any kind of historical take. It's really almost uh, an elevated form of fan fiction, you know, mm -hmm. the way that fan fiction takes a story and imagines in between the cracks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the sort of genesis of fan fiction being something like, what if Kirk and Spock were lovers, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I feel like your 
fictionalization of her life is very much in that spirit. It's finding these places to burrow into the real story with lots of details that are absolutely real um, and find this kind of flowering of imagination within it. And you, you do that really, really well. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm so glad that, that and, I, and you know, people who do become obsessed with Emily Dickinson, which I am one of, you know, we, they, we, we can be very possessive of, of Emily Dickinson. And I didn't see either of the two Dickinson movies that came out both during the time that I was working on this, because I've been working on this since 2013. And I felt like I didn't want to see them because it would, it would interfere with like my relationship to the characters that I was building. Um, but I also feel like it's important, well, two things. One is she's actually not meant to be a teenager in the show she's she's in her early 20s and um and the show a lot of the responses have framed it as like oh this must have been an attempt to make Emily Dickinson accessible to like a teen audience and I'm like no that was not the intention that's great if that happened but the my intention was as an artist and a writer who has written about many subjects and not all period and not all bio you know anything like that but I I basically was making like a collage almost out of her poetry and her biography and again like the con the wider context so you know we have Thoreau as a character and Louisa May Alcott as a character even <laughs> though she never met those people but that doesn't matter because I'm not trying to tell I'm not actually trying to teach anyone what really happened in the life of Emily Dickinson which you know I have said before like if you made a TV show of the real external life of Emily Dickinson it would be so boring mm. because she basically <laughs> was just like fetching water all the time because that's what <laughs> women in the 1850s were doing doing um, but uh, but this 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 is this is like um, I want to I want to like take Dickinson and use her as like an avatar like like a lantern that you can hold up and like see around where we are because I I want to talk about where we are not not where I don't really ultimately care that much about the 1850s I care about 2019 or 2020 and like what's happening right now I, the, the phrase that came to mind, mind watching the show, and I had sort of a similar, I don't think I have quite the same, I haven't been to Emily Dickinson's house. <laughs> I really like Emily Dickinson's I hear it's poetry. packed there now, by the <laughs> way, You're from because of the show. You gotta go. Oh, wow. it's a, it's I'll get there. I live in California now. Anyway, <laughs> but I, I really do love Emily Dickinson's poetry and, and, you know, saw the trailer and was like, well, that's a direction. Hmm. Um, <laughs> And and but then upon watching the show was just absolutely delighted and the the phrase that kept coming to mind was reverently irreverent like I don't understand how the show simultaneously can be so it feels so reverent about the spirit that animates her poetry while feeling kind of wildly irreverent about the specific details and whether she ever met Thoreau and like you know, I don't think she was a slouching heathen who was like giving her mom lip about water all the time, although maybe she was. She kind of was. <laughs> a heathen, definitely. I, I, I mean, she was giving a lot of lip. Um, <laughs> anyway, regardless of whether, like the, the way that her poetry reaches me, and I have not read the biographies either, but like I feel, it feels like she's this, and the, the combination of the iconic portraiture of her and the poems themselves makes it feel, it makes me imagine this kind of like taut crabbed spirit from which like divine things like flow out, you know, and this, the wildness and like the fluidity of the body, just the physicality of, of Haley's performance is so not what you'd expect and, and presumably more accurate than I know or have bothered to research. But um, 
I don't know. I just, I, I, I love the way that you somehow feel animated by passion for her work and then using it to do something else. Like, mm. uh, and that, um, I, I want to know, like, when did this, how'd that start? Like, how'd you even get that idea? Well, I, I, I guess I, I, what, I used to write poetry in high school and I liked Emily Dickinson. And then when I was in my early 20s, I read a biography of hers, which is the one by Alfred Haybegger, which is called My Wars Are Laid Away in Books. And I think is a really great biography of her coming of age, like her, her adolescence and growing up with her family. And, um, uh, and something about her just... I don't know, like her basic situation. It just really resonated with me. I, I was growing up in the Hudson Valley, Stephen. And, uh, <laughs> and knew that, if yeah. you look out the window, it looks basically like, you know, 19th century New England. It's like there was a lot of horses and farms and barns. And I think I felt trapped uh, it, like any sort of, you know, adolescent person does. And um, and I I felt like I wanted, you know, I think Emily Dickinson's life is kind of defined by this need to find someone who understands her. And she never really does. Um, like maybe Sue comes the closest to understanding her, but she, she has this sort of like fundamentally unrequited life. And I guess that bleakness and that irony of her state of like always needing more than she was getting is what made me think that it should be a comedy <laughs> and like that it should be a half hour show and also like what what you were saying about you know her attachment to like seeing the infinite in the small right and I, I, I knew I didn't want to make like hour long episodes about Emily Dickinson because this wasn't like a sweeping epic this was a girl in her room, in her house, like with this tiny little desk on these tiny little pieces of paper, but but these huge emotions just like filling the space. Wait, can I just ask one question? Why doesn't she use full sheets of paper? She's constantly writing on scraps. Is that based on history and or some kind of historical paper shortage I should be aware of as a Massachusetts <laughs> or like... What's it going on? was hard to get paper and she saved like she saved weird pieces of paper and wrote on them like she wrote on the back of a candy wrapper or like there's a note that George Gould this guy who was at Amherst with Austin who's a character in the show he he invited her to a candy pulling and she saved that piece of paper for 20 years and then like wrote a poem on it 20 years later and um you know there's a lot of fascination to the like materiality of Dickinson's poems and specifically what she wrote on envelopes and like steamed open the envelopes and folded them out and then wrote like lyrics about bird wings on the wing of the envelope, you know? So, I mean, there's so many ways to look at Dickinson and I, they, I, I do think she is kind of an outsider artist and you could look at her as like, a paper artist. Like there's all kinds of ways to think about her because she ne she didn't really see her poems in print. So it's not like she really saw her work in books or magazines or newspapers like we think of a published writer. And especially now like we all just write on computer. I mean, I don't I barely ever write with a pen on a 
paper. So I see words in print in my head, but she saw them in her handwriting and yeah. You even use her handwriting wonderfully, mm. her incredibly distinctive handwriting in these moments, rare moments. There's not a lot of scenes of Haley Steinfeld at a desk scribbling. You know, it's not that classic, I am a writer, look at me writing sort of story. But, <laughs> but at the end of each episode, as the poem that gave the episode its title is, is read, or some part of it is read by Haley Steinfeld, you see it appear in Emily's handwriting. And I absolutely love that touch because her handwriting is so unforgettable. But I have two specific production-related questions yes. for you. So one of them is, did you write this for Haley Steinfeld? And did you you know that you wanted her so about the casting process of that character because it all hangs on that character right I mean if you don't have the right person as Emily in this it's just it's dead in the water and the second was about the house because having been to her house and done the great docent tour that they have there I really I mean it looked like you had built a replica of the house so I'm just curious what was it a built set you know was it were the interiors and exteriors in the same place Stuff yeah like that. um well well, I, 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 was, I was working on the show for a long time before it was cast at all. So it was like a, just an incredible stroke of luck to, to get Haley. And um, I, at this point, I mean, she's just such a force of nature and like fills the space of this role so beautifully. And I think also like Haley is a fundamentally dramatic actor who can be very funny and then also is a musician and music is so important to the show. So she's just like a phenomenon and it's incredible to, to have her in the character. Um, uh, and at this point now writing, you know, more seasons, I am writing it for Haley and for all the other actors who are there, which is just like the greatest luxury because we have such an amazing cast um, and, and like hearing their voices and getting to write for them is so cool. Um, but, uh, and then as far as production goes, so yeah, so like, the idea was always to be making this perfectly researched, detailed, uh, you know, representation, but that we were always searching for a way to fill it with like a, a detail that felt uncannily fresh and alive now. So, for example, you know, so we, we, we went to the Dickinson homestead, we worked with the museum, they gave us like original blueprints that people hadn't dug out for years and our production designer based, you know, the dimensions of the rooms on, and I had visited the house too, so like when I wrote it, I wrote it thinking of the actual house, you know. Um, but, uh, but then we, f we like, put wallpaper up that's like totally psychedelic and crazy and has these prints that just explode and then also like prints on the dresses that are crazy so there's all this sort of trippy like clashing patterns going on um and uh but so our our interiors are we shoot um on a soundstage in New York and we have like a facade of the first floor of the house and then all the, the rooms inside that we get to see. So it is kind of like a dollhouse getting, getting to be there on the set, like a huge dollhouse. And then we shoot the exteriors at this place called Old Bethpage Village, which is a place in Bethpage, Long Island that just is like a 19th century preserved period village. But we built a matching facade of the first floor of the Dickinson house there. So the, the top floor is all VFX. Um, so it's, it's weird. So like when you go to Bethpage, you just see a strange, like I, I, I forgot that the Dickinsons didn't live in like a split level house because it's just like a one floor, like <laughs> it's very weird. But, and then a lot of blue screen, like blotting things out, mm -hmm. but yeah. 
So is so. there going to be, now that we know there's a second season, is, is there going to be a construction of Austin well, and Sue's house? Yeah, I was, I was going to say that, and then I was like instinctively holding back the spoilers. But yeah, we have, we have the evergreens in season two, which really blows the homestead out of the water. <laughs> and um, is, it's so wild. Like in season one, we all thought the homestead was like the fanciest thing we'd ever seen. And now we have the evergreens, and, which is kind of part of the plot that like the Dickinson start to feel a little bit like keeping up with the Joneses with Austin and Sue's fancy new house that's next door. So, yeah. Um, if season one is about the patriarchy, mm. as what kept Emily down, what's keeping her down in season two? Well, I won't, I won't begin my, my press junket for season two quite yet, but it, 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 does, have, it, do, it does have to do with, with fame. Because, you know, a lot of... Th- what I'm trying to do, again, with the show is, is really use this to look at where, where we are now and where particularly, like, the millennial or Gen Z generation is now. And I think that it's so interesting that Emily Dickinson wrote so much about fame and attention and the price of fame and publicity versus privacy, and she's almost like the prophet of all of that stuff. And, you know, the Instagrams with people having fun or whatever. Um, I, I think that what we, what we will perhaps in her continued journey in season two come to find that maybe it was Emily's own relationship own ambivalent relationship to fame that stopped her from publishing. And it wasn't just her dad saying no. Mm. So Emily's Instagram would have been mad languorous. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, so languorous. <laughs> I think so. Um, before we exit the segment, I have to ask, what does it feel like to be looking at the screen and say, you know what? I hear a Billie Eilish song here. <laughs> And a trillion dollar company goes and gets the Billie Eilish song <laughs> and sticks it right there. Right where Elena wanted it. Where well, do you want this, ma'am? Right yeah. here? It's like a dresser, you know? Two guys suddenly bring it in. And- yeah. Well, I didn't know about Billie Eilish until the trillion dollar company introduced me, me to her. So that, that was exciting. Um, and uh, and it, worked, it worked very well. I hope, I hope Billie Eilish is happy because I feel like if you're going to see your song used in a scene, it might as well be a scene where Wiz Khalifa is playing death and Haley Steinfeld's yes. playing Emily Dickinson and they're riding in a carriage pulled by ghost horses. So... <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) I think you've had the last word with that. But so, you know, I happen to know that you may have listened to our podcast once or twice. Oh, yes. So you're familiar with the general format. (laughs) Will you stick around and endorse with us? I would love to. Ah, glory be. Thank you very much. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. (laughs) Dana. (laughs) Wait, I'm not done. No, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> the, the next syllable could come any time as I'm, as I'm speaking. I'll just hear it. Nah, just come out of midair. Um, all right, so I wanted to do one local endorsement uh, about Los Angeles and then to balance it out, something else that's global that everybody who's listening all over the world could participate in. So um, there were a lot of things to choose from because I've been here for a few days. I got here a little earlier than my co-hosts to have some research time. And I feel like this is the trip where I sort of, for the very first time, fantasized about living in L.A. and what it would be like. <laughs> and the reason that it doesn't often happen is because I don't drive. I, don't, I haven't driven in 20 years or so since I moved to New York. And so when you don't drive and you're in L.A., 
you just have a very strange experience of LA, and I actually love walking here. I always walk when I'm here a lot, but of course, you know, you're not really getting around much of town when you're doing that. You're more kind of micro-exploring some small neighborhood. In the area that I usually stay when I come here, just because it's convenient to the stuff I want to do, which is basically go to the Herrick Library, greatest research facility in the world about film, the Academy Library, um, is I stay in the general kind of Wilshire, LACMA area, right? And uh, <laughs> somebody loves that neighborhood. I don't even know if that is thought of as a neighborhood. Would you call that Miracle Mile, I guess, that area? So I guess what I want to shout out is this apparently very generic but secretly wonderful thing in a strip mall on the Miracle Mile. And in a larger sense, just shouting out and maybe asking our, our listeners as well to, to contribute other mysteries that inhabit the, the many strip malls of LA, right? So you're driving along and there's all these pink stucco, somewhat generic places where the signs have only one of a few fonts that they seem to have chosen between when they were all built at once. And, and yet, so many of them contain mysteries within them, right? I mean, we're here near Koreatown, and there's all these mysterious Korean strip malls that I would love to know what wonders they hold. So this particular strip mall is at the corner of Wilshire and Crescent Heights Boulevard. Looks completely generic, has a nail salon, has a mail postal place, has this cafe called Cafe Latte, which is so generic sounding. You know it! So it's such a generic sounding cafe, you might think it's just one of those places that just has like three dry pastries and some coffee and nowhere to sit, you know, I mean, just because of the location, the generic name, etc. One of those cafes. Yeah. But, it, but it happens to be, it's around the corner from the hotel I'm staying at, so I've gone for breakfast every morning this whole trip, and it's just this wonderful throwback. I feel like it's a throwback to an old style of restaurant running where there's this old man who runs it, who obviously treasures his restaurant and wants it to be run incredibly well. Um, I'm not going to say the food is exceptional. It's a diner. It's like tasty diner food that's served hot and perfectly good. But what makes Cafe Latte special is really just that they'll let you sit there as long as you want. It's a wonderful writing spot. Uh, the Wi-Fi is strong. The service is incredible. <laughs> um, you just feel so important and special while you're there. And after three days of me going there in the morning and just, you know, having my eggs and coffee or whatever, they knew me. By the third morning, they, they knew me. They knew which table I like to sit at. You know, they just bring your water at just the perfect time. It was sort of like not hovery, but very loving. And, uh, and I just shook the owner's hand on the last day and just said, every time I come to L.A., I'm going to come to your restaurant and thank you for running such a wonderful, homey place. And he was really touched. So I'm shouting out to Cafe Latte and hoping that people will send me their favorite strip mall secrets of LA. Ah, that's marvelous. <laughs> and for my global one, I can't decide. I, should I do, all right, here's going to be the choice. Um, a book about Emily Dickinson or a, um, a special online funny secret. I'll do one of them. I'll do both of them at some point, but should I do the Whoa. book about Emily Dickinson? Choose today? your own endorsement. This is wild. <laughs> Let's hear the applause for the Emily Dickinson recommendation. Okay. And the silly online funny secret? Oh. <laughs> My endorsement is Dickinson related, so Dickinson uh, okay. will not go unshouted out if right. you go with right. the funny I'll skip online Dickinson. secret. If anybody wants to know about that book, I can, I can tweet about it or something. It's a great book. So many great books about her. Okay, the funny online secret. I have to look at my card to make sure I get all the details right. The funny online secret is that you go on YouTube and you enter the words, O Fortuna, misheard lyrics... And you get a, um, a post that some YouTuber, random person, put up of the Carmina Burana chorus. I'm sure that you all know it, the Carl Orff chorus that's constantly used in horror movies, or it's often used parodically, too. It's just, um, uh, if I sing a little bit of it, you'll know it. Dun, 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 dun. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. Clap if you know it. Yeah. Yes. 
But also, just please keep doing that. <laughs> so that's this piece of music written in the 30s by Carl Orff, setting this Latin poem, medieval Latin poem, to music um, that's about fortune, O Fortuna. And because it sounds kind of apocalyptic, it's often used in horror movies or parodies of horror movies. And by now, it's become a cliche even to use it as a parody piece. It's just in commercials. It's everywhere. Um, and so this person just did, did the lyrics. This person took some little pieces of paper, and it's very low budget, and wrote out what they thought the lyrics, the Latin lyrics of O Fortuna sound like. <laughs> and the only two lines I can remember right now offhand are, this octopus, let's give him boots. <laughs> continues at that level of absurdity, but they actually get it. In, in almost every case, it sounds exactly like that's what the Latin lyrics are saying. It's so ridiculous, and it just goes on for about a minute and a half, but I guarantee if you turn this on on YouTube with a friend, it's my daughter, thank you, my 13-year-old daughter who introduced it to me, you'll be on the floor, and you'll be sending it to someone else within minutes. So, um, O Fortuna misheard lyrics on YouTube, that's my endorsement. Nah. <laughs> Julia, what do you got? Um, all right. Well, it's fun to talk about Emily Dickinson, and it's especially fun to talk about Emily Dickinson with someone who spent so much time thinking seriously about her. Uh, and so I wanted to just share an Emily Dickinson poem. The first one, not the first one I ever read, but one of the ones where I felt absolutely electrified by her ability to capture how what minute mundane experiences actually feel like in one of those ways that does make you feel like, whoa, the past, they thought they were in the present. Huh? <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. Um, all right, so here's, here's an old fave. A narrow fellow in the grass occasionally rides. You may have met him, did you not? His notice instant is... The grass divides as with a comb, a spotted shaft is seen, and then it closes at your feet and opens further on. He likes a boggy acre, a floor too cool for corn, but when a boy and barefoot, I more than once at noon, have passed, I thought, a whiplash unbraiding in the sun, when stooping to secure it, it wrinkled and was gone. Several of nature's people I know, and they know me, I feel for them a transport of cordiality. That's missing the last bit. It is? The last, the last line is zero at the bone. Yeah, you have your Got to get to zero at the bone. That's the part that I, ah, <laughs> stupid freaking iPhone thingamajig. Excuse me. This is all Apple's fault, I'd like to say. <laughs> but never met this fellow, attended or alone, without a tighter breathing and zero at the bone. Ooh. That's about a snake, guys. <laughs> All right, Elena, very excited to hear what you have. Um, well, it's funny because I didn't realize until you started talking that this is a local LA endorsement, which is um, that I'm going to endorse tarot cards. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I just, I love tarot. I feel like um, there's been a lot of attention paid recently to astrology and like millennials being into astrology, but I say focus on tarot. Um, I think it can be, um, I think if you can't afford therapy, 
you can pull out a tarot card and uh, get get something from it. Um, no, but so wait, also, this is home tarot. Oh or, yeah, or storefront tarot. Any, but Either, I okay. but I do believe in doing tarot for yourself. Yeah, I think you should like sit with the tarot cards, study them. Like it, I, I, tarot cards are just archetypes, and you can practice storytelling through this combination of like chance operations, your own intuition, and you know archetypes that have lasted through centuries. Um, and I, I, I find it, I find it like really, really helpful, and I, I use it personally as like guidance for myself, and also just like a fun uh, party trick and conversation starter. So, um, yeah, I pull, I pulled a tarot card today uh, that was justice. So I don't know, maybe that's about impeachment or something like that. But. <laughs> Stuck the landing. I love it. Um, <laughs> All right, so since Dana turned hers into a little game, I will too, which is, uh, so name another woman writer from the canon who's been made, for better and for worse, iconic. Uh, Many readers have a somewhat fetishistic relationship to her work, but when you actually read it, especially one work in particular, she's not who you think she's going to be. I am finally reading a book called The Boom. What? I'm reading The Bell Jar. I've never read The Bell Jar. And I, it is a completely different book from the one I'm expecting. I mean, I have in my head what I know of Sylvia Plath. I know from her biography and from uh, her, po- her poetry. And The Bell Jar is such a, it, 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 it's a blast of wiseacre energy from the 1950s that has more Holden Caulfield in it than it has what one might have thought prejudicially about Sylvia Plath going in. And I absolutely fucking love it. I mean, just the energy of it, the intensity of it, the confidence of it, uh, the language of it, and the sheer fucking attitudinizing of it is so... I mean, shame on me for expecting anything, A, for not having read the book until I turned 172. <laughs> and secondly, for, um, you know, for, for bringing an incredibly reductive stereotype to it, but it's just an amazing book. Um, and then very quickly, I want to endorse an essay I just read, about which I have mixed feelings, not about the quality of the essay, which is superlative through and through. It's by Barbara Aaron Reich, so almost inevitably it was going to be superb. It's called The Humanoid Stain, and it's on the Baffler's website, and it's in the printed baffler too, I'm sure. But she makes this incredible argument about, well, first of all, it's essayistic to the core, right? She's really sort of trying out an idea in that classic old essayistic way. And the idea is basically, or the, the sort of opening discursive gambit of it is, I too am hunkering down and hiding out from the Trump years. We're all finding our own psychological resistances in addition to joining in the, the resistance. We all have our own privately chosen and maybe idiosyncratic ones. And mine, Barbara Ehrenreich, is becoming obsessed with the cave paintings. And she just kind of, pardon the idiotic joke, but I mean, she just sort of crawled down this hole with the cave paintings. And she came up with this idea that they're in what's so alluring and provocative to her about the cave paintings. And she thinks in a somewhat subliminal way uh, to everybody about the cave paintings is that they're 
utterly human, right? They're evidence of us being, of us being human. At the same time, they're evidence of us being human without having an ego in a way. Like our place in the universe is completely different, conceived of in a totally, almost totally alien way in those cave paintings. And it's in this egolessness, she posits in a very tentative and essayistic way, we might find a selfhood that takes us out of the inevitable path of destruction that is climate change, and that somehow consuming the earth as if it's a commodity and there for us to exploit and use up and therefore eat away the basis for our own very, own very existence, that is somehow rooted in having lost this kind of egoless selfhood. And it, I don't know if I agree with it. There are p- p- moments when I'm like, the Julia Turner in me comes out, and I'm like, wait a second. Like, this is such a, like, prelapsarian argument. We were once perfectly at one with the blah, 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 bullshit. That's not true. And that's, there's no political salvation in imagining what we were 50,000 years ago, 75,000 years ago, and then trying to mimic it in some way. But it is so beautifully written and argued. It's a rhetorical masterpiece. And it does exactly what an essay should do, which is it really makes you think even when you're disagreeing with it. So highly recommended. Uh, I mean, Barbara Ehrenreich is one of the, in the pantheon, right? One of the heroes. Um, It's the humanoid stain on the baffler. Thank you very, very much, Elena, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, a genuine thrill to have had you as a listener, surpassed only by having you on the show. And you getting to be a showrunner for your own show is just a marvelous thank you. turn of events. Julia Turner, thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dane. <laughs> nah. A uh, pleasure. Fun show. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at, I said it, I say it every week and it really is true. The mail is getting better and better and better and better. We love corresponding with our uh, listeners. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at slate cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. Thank you very, very much to Faith uh, Smith, without whom this event never would have been pulled off, and Britt Pulley as well, uh, whose efforts also went into making this possible, and to the very wonderful City of Los Angeles Department of Cultural, uh, Cultural Affairs and the Barnstall Gallery Theater. This was a wonderful space to do the show in, and to you guys for showing up. This was a blast. Thank you very much. Thank you.